the banking and financial services industry is turning its focus towards innovation to prepare for a future that will be increasingly driven by technology and clearly customer experience. Key trends driving these innovation include ongoing digital transformation, collaboration with fintechs, and the increasing role of artificial intelligence, data analytics, and of course, robotics. Sanat, what do you think about the role of technology, customer experience, digital and financial services and banking sector? And also, if I can ask again, how is this sector evolving in your perspective? Thanks, Anand. That's obviously a very broad question and there's a lot to be said there, but let me try and uh, keep my response to a few relevant points. So I think, you know, without a doubt, when we look at the change that has happened in the industry, let's say over the last decade or so, the single biggest impactful factor is technology. Well, there is, of course, regulation and compliance, but that's a separate topic for discussion. So I'm not including that here. And within technology, certainly digital in more recent times is where everyone's attention is focused and rightly so. Now, when we look at how the sector is evolving and the impact of technology there, I'd say there are a few things for us to keep in mind. First, I think we have to acknowledge the fact that while the banking industry may not necessarily be the leaders as far as deployment of new technology is concerned compared to you know, some of the other industries, it is indeed you know, ubiquitous digitization which is presently reshaping the industry. And let me explain you know, what I mean by that. If you look at the banking industry traditionally, you know, you had some very, very large banks and those banks have grown even bigger. And historically, they've had the twin uh, you know, competitive advantages of a very wide distribution and of course, the access to a huge amount of capital. Now, what digital has done is that digital has completely eroded those twin advantages. So digital is turning out to be disruptive on the one hand and pervasive on the other. And this is already manifesting itself in different ways. So when you look at the way banking products and services are getting commoditized, for example, or the fact that banks are finding it increasingly difficult to differentiate themselves through purely the products that they offer, and they are increasingly having to you know, resort to other levers at their disposal, if you like, such as uh, you know, the fees, the advice, and of course, uh, services, which ultimately leads to a superior customer experience. But clearly, you know, leveraging, uh, you know, levers like rates and fees and advice is not enough. And in the increasingly competitive world that we are operating in, banks need to look at what more they can do. The fact that digital technologies are proving to be disruptive on the one hand, but indeed, even if banks are not careful, then it can be the death, the death knell of many banks. I think, you know, we shouldn't discount that. And while the banking industry per se has, doesn't have at the moment, an example of a Kodak moment, if you like. Truth is that uh, when you look at the various industries, you know, um, I read somewhere that in the last 15 years or so, uh, over 50% of the standard and poor 500 companies have actually disappeared. And a lot of that has to do with the technology or the lack of technology, if you like, inability to, uh, you know, combat the changes that are happening. So, you know, very clearly technology fits bang in the center of the change that's happening and i think the second dimension to that is that it's not just technology but the rapid evolution of technologies technology that was modern five years ago is already looking a little archaic and if anything newer and newer technologies you know whether it's artificial intelligence a lot of people are talking about blockchain when you look at the future people talk about you know virtual reality and augmented reality um, Internet of Things and quantum computing. You know, these are areas where, which are likely to be very, very disruptive in future. So I think all of these are, uh, you know, providing new opportunities to banks. But at the same time, I would say that if banks are not careful, then it could be disastrous for them. I'll just summarize this by saying uh, one thing, Anand, which is that, you know, we did a recent survey uh, at Finical with EFMA. What was not a surprise is that of the banks that we went to and polled, about 70% of them, 70, 70% of them, named legacy technology and a lack of agility as the biggest hurdle in transformation. So it is not the fact that it's absence of technology. Technology is available, everyone recognizes technology is available. It's the fact that in that plethora of choice that they've got, 
their inability to combat the legacy that still exists and the inability to show the kind of agility to scale it to the desired levels. This is what is really, you know, creating a big issue for the banks. So this is a very broad answer. I'm sure there are different dimensions of this that we can pick on as we as we go through this conversation. No, I think that sets the scene really well, Sanat. Thank you so much. And for our audience, exactly that's what we'll be exploring in today's conversation. Digital has disrupted everything. Over 500 S&P companies have disappeared and nobody has even noticed. The emerging nature of technology itself, there's so many great topics in relation to what we'll be talking about today. So welcome to the Infosys Knowledge Institute podcast, the brilliant basics edition, where we talk about digital disruption, design, and of course, future of work. The topic today is a really interesting one, which is digital banking in the new normal. My name is Anand Verma. I'm the European Head of Digital Services for Infosys and founder and CEO of Brilliant Basics. I'm absolutely delighted to have a friend of mine, also a colleague and an Infosys leader, Sanat Rao, who is a Chief Business Officer and Global Head of Finical at Infosys. He also sits on the board of Edgeverb and also is part of the Forbes Business Development Council as well. Sanat, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Anand. Entirely my pleasure. So Sanat, before we talk about the topic that I just mentioned and you described it very well, you know, it'll be great to hear about your background, you know, where did you grow up, your backstory, and also, you know, how did you get to where you are today? I have to start by saying there's nothing really eye-catching in my journey, Anand. And certainly when one looks at the exhilarating entrepreneurial journey that you've been on, mine has been a much more traditional uh, uh, journey, like not at all not at all you're inspiring for me so you know let's start on that. <laughs> so i think you know having said that i have to acknowledge that the journey is one that has given me immense satisfaction and it's not just because of the kind of companies and the people that i've been very fortunate to have been working with but also i think when i look back at a career that's just under three decades uh, for my own personal development and technology certainly is at the center of that because when i got into the banking industry technology was a very very different animal to what it is today so i started my career uh, after my mba with an australian bank ANZ. i worked with them initially in india and then moved to australia and at the turn of the last century um, you know owing to a variety of circumstances i got an opportunity to move into technology and mind you i don't have a technology background per se what did you study in yeah, Because I did an MBA, didn't you? That's right. It was a combination of marketing and finance. And I think from from an educational point of view, I think I went through a fairly standard routine in those days, which was to do a bachelor's degree. I tried my hand at chartered accountancy. I did that for a few years. And then it was just not my cup of tea. I think my my passion was always to do an MBA. And I finally was able to do that. And then, you know, I went, I went to the banking industry and, you know, at the turn of the century, when I had an opportunity to move into technology, it was really, uh, you know, because I was not certain of what to do that I started to take this change into technology. And I still call myself a kind of an accidental tourist into technology. Little did I realize that here today in 2020, I'd still be associated with technology, but fortunately, today working with one of the most admired companies in the world. My association with Finical itself started at a time when Finical was not yet born. Uh, I think at that time, the business unit that did similar work was, if I remember correctly, about five or seven million dollars in revenue. And in the unit at that time, if you said it was global, the globalization of the business then was really India and two or three countries, you know, who are immediate neighbors. Today, you know, it's been a long journey for that unit and, you know, Finical was born along the way and today we are global leaders in our space. And I've been fortunate to have been associated with a good part of the journey, except for a short stint in between when I went away to IBM. But otherwise, it's been a great journey. Uh, you know, today we are a global leader and I have to say, you know, the people, the company itself and indeed my personal enrichment is something that I'm immensely proud of and thankful for. What a story. And it is inspirational, even though you think that it's not. You know, I was talking to Nandan the other day and, you know, we we're talking about entrepreneurship and he said, Anand, there are two kinds of entrepreneurs, right? Entrepreneurs who kind of build company from scratch and entrepreneurs who take 
uh, business and make it 10x or 100x bigger, right? So, so I think there's entrepreneurship in everyone. And I really associate the story that you're talking about with your entrepreneurship within the company itself. And, and I've seen Finicle, you know, rising from strength to strength and, you know, heights that it has reached as well. It's become the leader, right, with regards to what it does and where it's also going. So, and, and I think that gives us a nice segue to talk about what Finicle actually is for our listeners and also where Finical is actually going in terms of, you know, its strategy. So Finical started, if you go back to our genesis a couple of decades ago, we started in area of core banking. And core banking itself in those days was very different from the way it is today. So our business was to help, you know, modernize and standardize backend uh, uh, engines, if you like. In those days, digital was not known. And somewhere along the way, you know, electronic channels began coming up. In the last five years or so, Finical has been focusing a lot of our attention on digital as well. So today, as we speak, not only are, are we a global leader uh, in the core banking space. So while we got into the space about two decades ago, uh, I think we've made all the associated changes that we need to make so that we continue to remain relevant. Uh, but at the same time, we branched out into the digital side. And um, I think today we are one of possibly only two vendors globally who are uh, you know, acknowledged as a leader by independent analysts, both in the core banking area and in the digital space. And this fits in very well with our strategy because, you know, today banks want to have a choice. You know, there's no one size fits all approach for banks. Uh, sometimes the transformation starts in one part of the bank and then goes to the other. So we, we need to be a partner who can offer them the choice. And I think, you know, our strategy of focusing on digital without diluting the attention of core banking and, you know, backend legacy modernization, I think is serving us very well because we are finding today there are huge opportunities in both of these areas. And our story of front to back or end to end is really resonating very, very well with banks. And uh, Sanat, given my role as the kind of leading the experience side of things uh, at Billion Basics and, and also for emphasis, customer experience is key in changing the bank's role or financial services role, but also in this case, Finical's role as well. So one of the questions that was coming to my mind in preparation to this session was, how is the evolving nature of customer experience, the rise of fintech where they start with a customer problem to build their product, for example, is also changing, first of all, Finical's ways of working and ways of thinking of product, but also the banks and, and how they're reacting to that? Great question. And I think a very, very relevant question because something that we like to tell banks that are evaluating potential solution vendors is that you're not spending money to replace one piece of software with the other. And you're certainly not spending money to get functionality. Functionality is important, but that's not the end point. Today, it's all about winning mindshare and getting more share of the customer's wallet. And therefore, it is indeed, from a bank's point of view, the customer experience that they are able to offer to their end clients, which is the biggest single differentiator. And I think, you know, this is an evolution and a maturity curve for everyone, whether it's people like us on the vendor side or indeed the banks themselves. And I think the good thing is that from an industry point of view, everyone today recognizes that customer experience is the holy grail, if you like. And it's the one that really differentiates that. Now, as, as far as customer experience is concerned, I think, you know, from Finical's point of view, I think we've also learned many things along the way. So uh, if you go back to five years or so, we tried to design customer experience at the front end of our applications. And we continue to do that. But I think given the importance of customer experience today, given the power of the newer technologies that are available to facilitate superior customer experience. I think there's a realization that people who build good software are not necessarily the same people who can define good customer experience. And therefore, you know, whether it's the experience of working with Anand, you and your team at Billion Basics, or whether it's even when we go to banks, you know, we offer them a customer experience layer uh, out of the box with our own product, but we are happy to work with banks to define what they think should be a customer experience for them in terms of what they take forward to the bank. So I think they're giving the choice to customers. 
and we have something out of the box as far as we're concerned, but we recognize that that may not you know, suit everyone. I think the other big change is that customer experience is forcing everyone, whether it's the bank in terms of their end customer, whether it's even ourselves on the solution vendor side, you know, when we deal with banking customers, customer experience is forcing everyone to take an outside in view. Because I think many of us in the past were guilty of taking an inside in view, inside out view, sorry, because you tend to start with what you're comfortable at. And then you think that that's what will suit the customer. Today, when you put customer experience at the forefront and as a starting point, your starting point really is what is it the customer wants? And then you work backwards to see how you can make good that. So I think that's a big, big change. And I would say that's the single biggest change that we've seen. And I think that works very well because at the end of the day, you might think you're doing great stuff, but ultimately if the end customer is not endorsing that, then what's the use? So I think this outside-in perspective is a big change. And I think we're still very early in the days of customer experience. I think this is going to be one of the most exciting areas uh, on the one hand, but at the same time, you know, with the with the power of new technology available, it's going to be an area where there's going to be an increasing amount of differentiation going forward. Yeah, that is really interesting. And I would love to know how the bank's uh, leadership team, C-Suite, are looking at that as well in, in a few seconds. One of the things that listeners might find useful, Sanat, is maybe bring this to life with a use case or an example. I'm not sure client could be uh, referenced in this podcast from your perspective, but it'll be great to kind of hear uh, a real example of where Finical has managed to kind of achieve this. Sure. I think in terms of what we've been able to do when we work with banks in the area of helping them use technology and, you know, looking at some use cases, uh, I think one of the most interesting challenges for us is, you know, there is a growing trend in the banking industry today of large banks creating digital-only banks, right? because they recognize that in the parent large institution, they're probably not geared for a completely digital proposition for a variety of reasons and good reasons for that. And we're finding more and more banks today creating digital entities where they are not burdened by legacy at the start. The kind of staff that they have there in terms of profile are very different from the staff in a traditional bank. The technology that they deploy from day one is, you know, on the cloud, modern technology and so on. So uh, I think the whole experience of creating digital banks has been an amazing uh, example for us. And we've been fortunate to, you know, work with the likes of Marcus by Goldman Sachs, Live by a very visible bank in Dubai, uh, you know, Emirates NBD. Uh, or Digibank by, you know, what is known as the world's most digital bank, which is DBS Bank of Singapore. Um, in fact, what is not known, Anand, is that amongst the digital-only banks in the world, uh, Finical has the highest market share. So that's something that's very, very impressive, I think. The second example is how are we working with banks to monetize uh, the open banking opportunity? And while open banking as a phenomenon is more mature here in the UK and Europe than most other parts of the world. What is not recognized is that open banking, the basic principles of open banking, you know, they began flourishing and emanating in different avatars in different parts of the world. Uh, and if I just give a couple of examples, in India, for example, ICICI Bank, they took to introduce short-term digital credit product, you know, which mimics the properties of a traditional credit card but they don't use any of the traditional card networks like a Visa or a MasterCard. Instead, what it does is that it works on the open banking payment ecosystem that's been developed locally there. And the product that they've launched, which is called ICICI Bank Pay Later, is an instant digital credit facility that enables customers you know, to, you know, to pay their bills, to shop online, or to you know, pay any offline merchant. Now, these kind of capabilities today are putting a lot more power in the hands of the end customer. But at the same time, the bank is bringing together capabilities beyond just what they themselves offer to be able to make a more holistic proposition available. The other great thing is that we've been able to work with banks like ICICI and the others to completely change the customer experience. So while they don't compromise any of the mandatory checks that are required around know your customer and so on the ability for us to be able to support them in a completely digital and a paperless manner and complete the whole transaction in under two minutes 
whereby what is really required to be done by the customer is done upfront and all the other mandatory paperwork can be done at the back end. So you don't burden the customer with that. That's creating a new experience on the one hand for the end customer, but ultimately it's also creating the ability for banks to leverage technology and use the principles of open banking to broaden the proposition, but at the same time change the uh, customer experience. The other example I just want to mention is something that's increasingly becoming uh, relevant today in different parts of the world, which is that I think banks are recognizing that there is a marketplace model, if you like, which is becoming very, very uh, relevant in certain segments of the market. And whether it is the likes of Citibank, which have tied up with one or two large banks in India, or whether it is, uh, you know, just the fact that banks leverage the APIs that are available in Finical to be able to associate with other third-party players and bring to the table capabilities, products, and services, which are not necessarily from the bank's own portfolio. And that allows them to create this marketplace model. So I think these are, you know, these two or three examples that I gave are different kinds of uh, examples which allow banks to differentiate and create this great experience. So just to summarize, it's, you know, monetization of open banking. It's the development and launching of a marketplace that I talked about. And the one that I referred to right at the start, which is to launch a completely digital, completely different digital bank. That's really amazing. And, you know, and I think you give a diaspora of different examples, which is, and sometimes it doesn't come out clearly in terms of Finical proposition. People still associate Finical with core banking, but it's so much, much more than that. And what you said really kind of bowled me over, which is Finical enables more digital banks than any other venture globally, right? And I think that is phenomenal, especially everybody's going on that digital banking journey. And, you know, and I think that this statement is so powerful, you know, that I learned something really unique today. Just kind of shifting gears slightly, Sanat, and, you know, you deal with a number of board level people, the C-suite all in your role. There must be a contrarian stance on this, right? You know, what are some of the most popular misconceptions that people have, the leaders have about digital banking and also the new age banking as well in your experience? So, Anand, that's a great question. And you're right. You know, there have been misconceptions along the way, uh, which have led to certain contrarian positions. I think over time, the misconceptions have not gone away. If anything, they've sort of taken a different shape. And, you know, let me explain what I mean. So if you go back to the early stages of digital, five plus years ago, I think in the minds of many banks, digital meant an electronic channel. And if you ask someone, what are you doing as far as digital is concerned? They'll say we're introducing electronic banking or we're introducing mobile banking or something like that. I think that has by and large been addressed. And that misconception, I think, has today largely gone away. Having said that, I think given that digital transformation in some form or the other continues to you know, exist in most institutions today, I think the other big misconception at the moment is the fact that digital banking is purely a technology play. And I'd submit to you that banks that take that approach are playing into a very dangerous game. Digital banking is much more than technology. Technology, of course, is bang in the middle of that, no doubt about it. But it's much more than just technology play. And when I look at our own experience of having worked with so many banks in all the six continents of the world, I think when you look at the right formula or what is the right formula for digital banking, I think we we would submit that there are different elements to it. One is, of course, you know, the ability of a bank to leverage technology and transform its business model from a traditional pipeline model to a more platform-based model. The second is that in the past, banks were quite happy to work in organizational silos where you had a product team working in one part, another product team working in a different part. I think today there is organizational agility that's being brought to the table and therefore these silos are being broken. The third important element is that technology today is allowing banks to automate operations in a hugely different way. And that's the other big change. The fourth I would point towards is what is increasingly becoming mainstream, which is that the modernization of your legacy uh, applications is going hand in hand with a question of how will we move to the cloud? And there's no one journey to the cloud and there's no one size fits all approach. But the great development in this space is that today banks are no longer saying, should we move to the cloud? The question more is, how do we move to the cloud? 
And last but not the least, I would point to arguably the biggest element of this change, but probably the most understated, if you like, which is that at the end of the day, it's all about people and culture. If you listen to the transformation that's happened in DBS Bank in Singapore, and they are today recognized as the most digital bank in the world, their story is obviously a lot about technology. It's also about how the organization has changed. And it's all about people, culture. It's all about being driven from top down. So these are all the different positions. And these were far removed from the definition of digital five, 10 years ago. So I think misconceptions have changed along the way. But uh, to summarize, I would say it's a very dangerous proposition to believe that digital is all only about technology. Yeah, that's a good one. And thanks for uh, unpacking that as well. So digital banking is much more than just a technology play. Uh, stay with us. Once again, you're listening to the Infosys Knowledge Institute, the Brilliant Basics Edition. Today, we're talking about digital banking and the new normal. I'm delighted to be here with Sanat, Chief Business Officer and Global Head of Finical at Infosys. So Sanat, just kind of changing tack now and, you know, talking about, you know, and, and I've been part of the platform discussions at Infosys recently as well, and I'm sure you're a core part of that, is platform-driven business models. With regards to the research that we have seen, platform business economics uh, can be quite a large business model. It's projected to expand continuously. I've I've been looking at some of the research around, you know, how companies are operating at both platform mindset and services mindset combined together. You know, I would love to get your perspective with regards to what is a platform-led business model, first of all, and also what advice can you share with the listeners with regards to how to tap into platform opportunities? All of us, I think, today are familiar with what a platform means. And indeed, when you look at the really disruptive platforms that have existed in the world today, none of them are from the banking industry. And that might surprise many of us because banks have been you know, early adopters of technology. But really, the platforms that you and I know of and the more familiar examples of whether it's Facebook or Uber or Airbnb are all outside the banking industry. Having said that, I think the acknowledgement has to be made that the platform model is here to stay. It is increasingly maturing. And indeed, even in the banking industry, today the realization that banks need to have their perspective of how they'll adopt the platform model. Now, let me try and paint a picture for you, and hopefully your listeners can relate to this. So traditionally, what used to happen was that banks, you know, the business model in the bank was vertically integrated. So you had a product that was being manufactured by the bank uh, in one part of the bank, and it was being distributed by a certain set of people. It was being distributed through a, through a certain number of channels. And therefore, front to back, it was vertically integrated, but it was a product silo. Those kind of value chains are were fragmented, and those are being broken up. And if you look at a bank today, the way we look at our own you know, banks, the banks that we deal with, what are essentially the three or four layers of work that the banks are doing? First, they manufacture products. Second is that they identify who those products need to be sold to. And third, they decide how they will distribute those products. There's also the added dimension of the product's portfolio. And what's certainly happening today is that in a traditional model, the banks used to sell their own products, but in the platform model, Technology is allowing banks to not just you know, sell their self-created products, but they're able to add on complementary partner products, products built by someone else, but which can be sold to your clients through your distribution channels. The other change that's happening here, uh, Anand, is, and this is something very significant, which is that in the past, institutions were very wary, indeed suspicious, if you like, of working with someone else. The, the belief was that I can do everything and I will do everything. I think today we are in an era where creating joint products with other banks or partners or fintechs or indeed even some of the digital giants is here to stay. And while there's a recognition that two institutions may compete in one area, there's nothing to prevent them from collaborating in some other area. And then some amazing partnerships have come to light. So if you see the recently announced partnership between uh, Marcus by Goldman Sachs, our customer, and the Apple card, for example, that, that's been a very visible example of two players from two different industries coming together. That's in the US. If you, you know, travel towards Asia, 
Citibank wanted to capture, uh, you know, the large demographic advantage that India had, and they combined uh, with Paytm to launch a new credit card and sell that in India. But it doesn't stop there. You know, today I think again technology is allowing banks to leverage through the platform model the ability to create, uh, you know, lifestyle products, and therefore today it's not at all unusual to be able to do you know things like hotel bookings flight bookings or you know cab bookings through the infrastructure and capability that's available through the platform model uh, in banks last but not the least i think there's a very big fundamental shift in that banks today are recognizing that they can indeed be selling competing products on third parties and that's here to stay and it goes back to the point i made a few minutes ago which is that you can compete in one area but collaborate in the other area this is all in terms of the product manufacturing part, which, I, like I mentioned, was right at the back in the in the engine room. This is where the work is being done. If you go to the middle layer, this is where the banks, I think, today are focusing from being a distributor, if you like, of self-created products to being a marketplace where the customer can, you know, access the capability that you make available for a full range of products, which are sourced from a variety of different sources. You know, one is, of course, your own in-house created products. But increasingly, those that are built by partners or products that are jointly created or indeed sometimes even procured from competitors. So banks will try and create, I think, a best match based on the contextual needs of customers and the products and services will be available in their aggregate portfolio. So this is the middle layer, which uh, for want of a better word, I call a layer of matchmaking. So you manufacture, you determine the portfolio of products, which includes things that you you will not manufacture on your own. And then you come to the very, very interesting part of the distribution side. And banks will today increasingly offer aggregated products and services, not just through their own channels, but increasingly we'll find that the shift is going to be towards third-party channels, including you know, non-assisted channels. If you go back to the traditional definition, the traditional definition was that you needed a channel which was bank-owned. But today, with newer technologies, with non-banking infrastructure you know like a smart home or the newer automation devices that are available banks are today able to uh, allow the distribution of banking products and services through third-party unassisted channels and indeed this is going to be one very very big area where there's going to be a huge amount of change Uh, there's obviously a lot more that can be said about platforms but i think fundamentally this is where it comes to the fore which is that the bank has the ability to create an ecosystem and you know make a proposition that's much much larger than their own you'd also asked what the advice to listeners would be it's all very well to i think get excited by something like this and certainly when you look at the huge disruptive platforms that today are in existence in the market like i said earlier they're not in banking but i have no doubt that in the banking industry sooner rather than later we will see some kind of a large platform play Having said that, uh, you know, and recognizing the platforms are here to say, the future platforms will continue to, you know, inspire both on the innovation side and the disruption side. But I don't think, you know, we would actually be making a big mistake if we just felt that if you launch a platform, that by itself is going to be the answer to all your problems. So I think platform as a model is a great model. I have no doubt that many banks will launch platforms in some manner or the other will they be truly disruptive and you know at scale like the you know like uber for example or like facebook or amazon for example i don't know so i think platforms are here to stay platforms have a big role to play but i think it'll be you know increasingly harder to sort of capture and monetize and make it truly disruptive right right and what is exciting is digital has enabled the power of partnership so what you're saying is that it's uh companies that would not otherwise work together are working together products that otherwise not be manufactured by one company are getting manufactured together or shared on the platform so the definition of also the platform has evolved dramatically would you agree with that that's right so as the definition has evolved i think some of this thinking that i talked about which is that your platform should incorporate third-party products should incorporate third-party channels should incorporate the possibility of jointly creating products with someone else. This is all a maturity in the thinking. You're absolutely right. Got it. You know, that's a really good point because with platform comes the evolution, right? And how can we not talk about evolution given we are in a 
unprecedented times with COVID-19. And we have been recording this remotely as well. And I've been recording podcasts for the last 100 or so days remotely as well. What's your view on how the definition of money and the money market and financial services changing or evolving or reimagined because of the COVID-19 situation we are in? So I'm going to take a slightly contrarian view here. Uh, There was this WhatsApp message that was going around not too long ago saying, what is the biggest facilitator to moving towards digital? And of the three or four options that was given, COVID-19 was one. And there's no doubt that the current pandemic is a big, big, the move towards uh, digital banking. Uh, And indeed, digitalization in every aspect of our life. If you stick with the banking industry for a moment, I don't think COVID-19 alone is going to change everything dramatically. I think there's no doubt that COVID-19 will hasten the adoption of digital, will hasten the, the maturity of digital. But I don't know whether just one experience of COVID-19 is enough. You probably need two or three such for it there to be a radical change. That said, there's no doubt that even in the last four months or five months that we've all been in lockdown, there's no doubt that because of COVID-19, a lot of misconceptions have been sort of dispelled and there's been a rapid move towards digitalization. Now, in terms of financials, I think as the pandemic creates the recessionary conditions and you know we read about that in the newspapers every day, Banks, I think, are really working hard and overtime to respond to the crisis. I certainly believe that the banking industry has a very, very big role to play in the way we combat the current situation. In terms purely of digital adoption, I think without exception, the banks that we have spoken to in the last few months say that they're experiencing a very sharp acceleration in, in digital adoption across segments. And I think we're seeing that, you know, my own parents who are you know, in their late 70s and early 80s, They've been able to, you know, use the Zooms and all the other collaboration channels very, very easily. And I think there are many, many such examples in all of our families across the world. So I think the fact that there is a hastening towards that, there's no doubt about it. But the other important thing is that, you know, customers of banks are not only banking more on digital channels, but they're also, I think, consuming more products digitally. I dare say that, you know, once the dust settles on COVID-19, whenever that is, Customers may partially revert to physical banking, but a total return to how it was done earlier, I think, is ruled out. So, you know, I don't subscribe to the view that branches will disappear. But at the same time, we probably don't need as many branches as we have today. But branches were disappearing already, isn't it, uh, Sanat? And this will only kind of has the more disappearance. Do you do you think? Sure, it will. The ones that remain, there'll be some change. So. You know, mundane transactions, which don't necessarily need face-to-face, I think will increasingly get done through the remote channels. But there'll certainly be some activities, advisory, for example, which where clients might still want to be with their banker and do it face-to-face. So I think there will be a reassessment of what actually needs to get done. And there'll certainly be the more progressive banks who, you know, take a step further to recast their business into completely new digital models. So in our own case, for example, you know, in terms of our own operations, you know, we swiftly moved to a remote working environment. I think, if I remember correctly, about 95% of our workforce were working from the safety of their homes very, very quickly. And that transition happened extremely smoothly. I think the question really, Anand, is that everyone conformed to this because of fear, right? So if you go back to March, where the world suddenly went into lockdown and everyone went home, the planet went home, there was genuine fear because no one knew what this virus was about. And therefore, I think even in societies and economies where adoption or where the conformance to practices, um, uh, you know, such as stay completely at home or wear a mask were not sort of prevalent in the past, I think it was a fear that made everyone sort of go down that route. I think the question will be, as things start easing, exactly like the way we are seeing it right now, Will customers and the general public still conform to this or will we go back to our old ways? I think there, there is something that we still need to wait and watch. But I'm firmly of the opinion that uh, COVID-19 has hastened it. It will certainly make us rethink about many elements of the way we used to live and work in the past. But just one COVID-19 is not necessarily going to change everything. So to round off this answer, I mean, the question that a customer asked me last week was, you know, I used to travel 15 to 20 days a month, every month on business. 
and a customer asked me, you know, will travel stop? And I said, no, travel will not stop. Almost certainly I'll not travel as much as I did in the past. I won't need to travel. Customers won't expect me for every meeting. But at the same time, I don't think one can just afford to be in our home office throughout and say that we'll get all the business done here. Correct. Correct. I'm ready to get out of my home office. I'm sure you are as well. And, you know, talking about capitalism, the other capitalism that kind of really interests me called stakeholder capitalism. And kind of we were talking about it offline a few days back, Sanat. The role of uh, institutions generally, especially banks as well, is changing dramatically, right? So where it's not just about pleasing the shareholders, you know, it's about the environment, uh, it's about society, it's about climate number of things are basically coming together. Governance, for example, I would love to get your view on, especially with financial institution, but also in general as well, is, you know, stakeholder capitalism. And I think COVID-19 has also hastened that process, right? We were thinking about communities, we're clapping for the uh, social care, all these things. What's your view on this? Let me answer this a little more broadly rather than just the banking industry. So I think I've been reading quite a bit about capitalism in the last six months, and it's a topic that I think is very relevant today. And not just because, you know, there are a large number of people today who think that capitalism is broken and is not working for them. I think capitalism is an important invention in the world that we live in, and we need to address the issues there. And certainly in recent times, there have been the right kind of debates within society and increasingly in the world of business as to what is the role that purpose-driven businesses play in driving change? And you're absolutely right. You know, banks and many corporations have become very aware of their role and their responsibility, if you like, towards other relevant issues beyond just making profit. And there's probably a good debate to be done about whether, you know, companies should do good just for the sake of it or whether the act of doing good, you know, should be driven into their business model. And I certainly, you know, I'm no expert on this topic of capitalism, but on the basis of what I've read and understood in the last few months, I do believe that there's an increasingly strong argument to be made that the act of doing good should be, you know, driven into the business model of organizations. So to that extent, there's probably a structural change that's required in the way the world is operating today. And, you know, um, if you take Elon Musk, for example, right, possibly not everyone's favorite individual, but for a moment, if you just keep our respective emotions and biases aside and think about that. Isn't it possible that Elon Musk genuinely thought that electric vehicles were going to be truly good for the world? And I dare say with his focus on making electric vehicles, he has probably hastened the development of electric vehicles by a good number of years. That If, if he didn't come on the scene and Tesla didn't focus on EVs, the automobile industry probably would have taken a much, much longer time to really pay serious attention to electric vehicles. Now, why have I given this? I think this example is a good example of a company which had not lost its capitalist soul. So he was there, he wanted to make a profit, he ran the company with a motive like any other corporation. And yet there was an underlying attempt to try and do good for the world, which was you know, to bring in electric vehicle and move it away from you know, oil and so on. So I believe there is this debate about capitalism, the role the companies and you know businesses play, and indeed what is their role and responsibility to the world. So this debate I think preceded COVID-19, and I think when you you know when you look at the measures that corporations such as to take just two examples, Microsoft and Starbucks have taken towards climate change, for example, I think it's very clear that there are many companies today who are very serious about this and who are looking at making changes not just for the sake of it, but because they genuinely believe that these changes are to be made and they recognize that there are other stakeholders who are part of the same environment to whom you have a responsibility. Uh, and I just want to end, you know, as far as Infosys is concerned, I think right from the beginning when the company was formed and it was a startup and not the global, hugely, you know, respected corporation that we are today, you know, Mr. Murthy had always propagated the philosophy of, you know, compassionate capitalism, which was, you always have a capitalism in mind. Look at socialism at heart. No, that is really interesting. And I think my kind of second point here, and I, I'm so glad you mentioned Mr. Murthy. He is just like Elon Musk. Mr. Murthy is a change maker in our industry, right? And and that change comes not just by creating new marketplaces, but also taking 
the market, the community with that as well, right? And I think one of the things that was making me quite excited reading your article recently was the role of leadership in the current situation. I would kind of extend the question a little bit more for you. With the role of leadership in current situation, a lot of leaders are behaving differently given the pressures on cost, given the pressures on products and services, consumer pressures, job pressures, so many things. In your view, what should be, could be the role of a leader in the current situation that we are in? That's a great question, Anand, um, and I'm reading a lot about today. And in fact, in the last 48 hours, uh, an article that I'd recently written was published in the Forbes magazine, where I said, leadership needs to continue, but you need to deal with leadership with soft hands. So you deal with the hard problems, we'll deal with them in soft hands. So I think, you know, in the last four months, the question of leadership has come up ever so often. It started with, should we go into lockdown? And all the associated questions that were asked of governments and companies as the planet went back home, if you like. And today we are in an environment for four months, five months later, where fortunately things are looking better. And the question now in front of governments and chancellors in different countries is that, you know, how do you start easing the, the economy and create economic activity going, but without necessarily exposing everyone to the health risks because the virus has not gone away. And these are leadership questions. I think if there's one thing which certainly I have seen in the last few months, it is this, that, and I like to give this example in this context. So the example I give is that, you know, when we go into an office, there is a manager there or a general manager or a CEO or whatever, right? So that individual has certain privileges there because of the position that he or she occupies in the organization. Now, when everyone went home, that CEO or that general manager was dealing with exactly the same kind of problems that someone down the line in his team was, right? So dealing with children at home, dealing with all the other issues of the entire family working from home, finding the right balance between work life and everything else. So this pandemic didn't hit the leaders any less than, you know, people down the line. So I think one thing that has certainly happened is that when you look at some of the more prominent examples of leadership in the last few months, whether it is, you know, what uh, Governor Cuomo did in, or continues to do in New York, whether it is what Jacinda Ardern did in New Zealand, or from a banking industry, when you look at what Jill Castilla did in the US, these are not examples of just leadership brilliance. They are examples of leadership backed by a certain humane perspective. And I think that's going to be the biggest change. It's not as though suddenly out of the pandemic, some very new radical scientific thinking of leadership is going to be there. I think that that pandemic is going to create a new, a new thread of leadership, a more human part of leadership. The fact that behind a leader is a human being, and that human being is no different from someone in his own team. I think this is going to come to the fore. No, I agree. And, and I think the empathy is the word that comes to my mind. And I think, you know, you're raising a really important point. And leadership can be a thankless task as well, right? It's like, you know, in some cases, parents, sometimes things just happen and people don't realize as well. And I quite like this, bringing that humane aspect of leadership where everybody is on the same boat together. And that's what COVID-19 has created, right? It's created, you know, hundreds of offices in people's homes, not just one office where people come together. Um, and I think it's a brilliant, brilliant way of uh, wrapping up our business part of this podcast. And Sanat, thanks for a very insightful conversation, very passionate conversation as well. I learned loads today. You know, one of the traditions uh, we have on the podcast is to ask our guests about their favorite book, uh, what you're reading right now, why you're reading, some insights to share from you. So love to hear from you what, what you're up to nowadays from a reading perspective. You've touched on a slightly raw nerve here. <laughs> uh, and I say that only because I have to confess that I'm not a voracious reader. In fact, I think in the last six to 12 months, if I've become better informed on many things, even outside of banking and digital and technology, it's actually through a slightly different medium, which is podcasts. And I listen to a lot of podcasts when I'm out on my daily exercise. Uh, I have my airpods on it's not as i'm listening to music more often than not i'm listening to podcasts having said that you know i have been doing a lot more reading in the last one year than i think i've done for many many years the book that i'm presently reading so i'm not going to say a favorite book because i think 
every book and every podcast i think offers something new and therefore it's probably wrong to say that one is more relevant than the other uh, so the book that i'm presently reading is uh, something called doing digital lessons from leaders it's by chris skinner and there he's you know interviewed and studied five large banks that have made huge strides towards digital and while there are you know multiple messages in the book i think the key ones that i took away are number one that digital transformation goes well beyond technology and we talked about this a little earlier second that the change in the organization is driven from the very top and last but not the least i think the fact that large organizations can change too and i stress upon this because there is this feeling and rightly so there is the feeling that in adapting to the digital world it's the smaller newer younger organizations who will adapt more quickly and indeed they will but i think what this book has dispelled is that the the big boys can't change and he's taken five big banks jp morgan chase bbva ing dbs bank and china merchants bank um, he studied those uh, banks very carefully he spent a lot of time with the leaders there and there are lots of examples i've not yet completed the book it's a fairly big book but i think all of these banks and indeed there may be a handful of other banks as well which are great examples of banks which are changing and despite their size they they are driving digital to the core so that's a book that i'm currently reading besides books i i tend to read a lot of other publications on my ipad but like i said podcast remains my primary source of information amazing very efficient as well that's brilliant and uh, thanks for sharing that sanat with regards to you know how can people find you online are you on social channels or are you staying away from those i am there on some channels so you'll you'll find me on facebook but you'll never find me posting on facebook i'm quite happy on facebook liking what someone else is posted uh, but the two channels that i really like are linkedin uh, where i've taken to posting quite regularly uh, i'm also very active on twitter and i'm i can be followed at, at @sanat_rao you know link to the fact that i've been listening to a lot of podcasts and you know been doing more reading as well i've begun writing quite a bit and the article that i referred to uh, you know two days ago in forbes that was my fourth article i think in the last 6 months so i'm a regular contributor to publications like forbes not not a social channel but it's a channel nevertheless where my views are being expressed and there again it's not always about banking and technology now that's brilliant and i've just followed you on twitter i i'm a big reader of your linkedin articles as well so keep pushing those things i learn a lot from that so much appreciated sanat thank you so much for your time and a incredibly interesting discussion today i appreciate it entirely my pleasure anand thank you so much for this anytime you can find the details on our show notes and transcripts at infosys.com/iki in our podcast section everyone You've been listening to the Infosys Knowledge Institute the Brilliant Basics edition where we talk about digital disruption design and future work. Thanks to our producer and researcher Yulia Dipari and the entire Knowledge Institute and Brilliant Basics team. Until next time keep learning and keep sharing and of course keep safe. Thank you.